Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The world's longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. And as I speak, it is a mere four seconds after eight o'clock here in the US, or in the UK rather, so just after eight o'clock British summertime. Hello everybody, and welcome to Midweek Motorsport. My name's John Hindorf, this is Series 14, Episode 330, and up in London is Tim Greer. Hello Tim. Hello John. Oh, you're a bit quiet to me. Am I? Yes. How's but that? I, I can live with it. Frankly. I'm a bit it quiet to everyone, to be honest. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's turn me up. Oh no, that's just making me to the right. Let's turn me up that way. Eh? There we go. Okay. And on a packed programme tonight, we have what? Uh, we have all the usual features. Excellent. And uh, we have uh, the return of Ask Atherton. Yes. Which ought to be a game show, but isn't. It's a serious uh, interview where we put to him the questions that you've been submitting over the last 72 hours. Yes, that's right, because on Friday... It was the IMSA State of the Series. Scott joined me on stage at uh, Road America to go through where IMSA is in 2019 and where it's going in 2020 and beyond. And if you haven't seen that yet, well, it was all available on IMSA.tv and I tweeted that out plenty of times. But we did ask for, for your questions all over the weekend and they have flooded in. So we'll get Scott on in, uh, in just a few moments' time uh, we've got a, a limited amount of time uh, to be with Mr Atherton, but thank you very much uh, to Scott for being with us uh, this evening. Do we still have time for Nick Damon and one or two other guests? Yes, we also have Shay Adam. Okay. Uh, by a lake. So <laughs> oh, she's back at the goes. lake, is she? Uh, I thought she was down in Fort Lauderdale. She's, I thought she'd gone back home. Well, maybe she's uh, sending me photos of the lake from Florida, just to confuse me. Oh, okay. That seems reasonable. Uh, your comments, etc., on at Specutainment. Hello to Simon Hoff, who's just catching up with last week's show. He said, I enjoyed the airtime given to radio controlled racing, teaches so much and gives good life skills on all levels from engineering, sportsmanship, social organisation, and, uh, and financial. You break it, but it only costs pocket money. I'm not sure about that, but fine. Uh, hello to Neil Gardner, who I know is tuned in tonight and finishing off a fantastic monochrome Porsche Martini. Monochrome Porsche and then full-colour Martini uh, print at the moment, or original, should I say. Neil, your work never ceases to amaze me. Rob Jayner, apologies for absence tonight. Looking forward to the pod- podcast while he's marshalling for the Silverstone <laughs> UK 750 Motor Club this weekend. I really think you should be watching the the uh, the track. To be honest, Rob, I, I wasn't. Sh- I, d- I didn't know that was happening this weekend. I might have a dodge dodge over uh, to Entropy Nebula. Oh, that's a new one on me. 
Very good. Uh, Noah AFA is listening in whilst revising some French and going over the highlights for the weekend. Plenty of highlights as well. Hello to Paul Dunk. Tron Valentine saving the broadcast for my weekly Thursday home commute in sunny Florida. All was worth it. Well, Tron, there's your first mention on Midweek Motorsport. Good to have you in tonight. Moni Elysium. Hello, Monica. Tuning in from the Cube, as usual. Golly, is it Wednesday night already? Says A110GE. Have to listen later. In Edinburgh at the Fringe and off to a gin evening before 8 o'clock. Is it, is it the Edinburgh Festival already? It certainly is, yeah. Does that mean we've got a bank holiday coming up then? In about three weeks' time, yes. Right, OK. I used to work at the Edinburgh Festival. I enjoyed it a lot at the Fringe Club. I once um, compared the Fringe Club. It was great fun. Uh, Josh Colback is listening on his commute home. Still reeling from seeing the IMSA Road Race Showcase at Road America. Amazing weekend. Amazing call from you guys and gals all weekend live at the track. Can't wait to hear what you guys take away from it. Um, we'll have shit to talk about that later on. No AFAs for Alexander Orkin. Uh, looking forward to his washing up, because that's what Alex does. Uh, fire up for she. I, I've got a machine for that. Anyways, but I, I actually think Alex has as well, but he just hasn't told the family. He just stands yeah, in the kitchen for two for hours. two hours on a Wednesday night. Has a glass of wine or something else, which, frankly, hey... Uh, Alan McNish could learn from him. Well, yes, absolutely. Jules says, fire up she sells sanctuary. No airfares for tonight. Pure, unadulterated, high-octane entertainment. Jules, thanks for joining us. Good evening to AMR, Adrian Michael Reese to Daniel Olesip. Says, no airfares, listening one hour south of Road America. Thanks for covering the races. Between eating my double brat between... Turn 5 and turn 6 in the race action. I had no time to tweet, but I'm all in for tonight's show. It was a good weekend, wasn't it? Hello to Chris Suku. No AFAs for Chris tonight. Might follow the warm chicken salad and avocado toast with a pre-weekend dose of light DIY. Why listen to the show? Need to know what you're doing, Chris. Is it drywall? Is it a bit of plastering? What you're doing? Pete Newton is tuned in and ready to go. Central Switzerland is tuned in with right turn lover. Raining here, but who cares? It's midweek motorsport, he says. Very good. Carol is tuned in. I'm ready for the first episode in Fog Quest. Oh, really? Is it really that big? Well, yes, it is. I've just seen the picture, Carol. That's Monterey, of course. Got another uh, update from Shay. Which is? To prove that she is actually at the lake, she sent me the same photo or the same view of the lake with half of her face in the foreground. And curly hair, I've just seen there as well. It must be the humidity. Yes, OK. That seems reasonable. Now, how do I get out of that, though? Right, OK, that's good. Uh, what else have we got tonight? Uh, Kevin Payne would like to hear more from Imza Atherton. Scott Atherton about DPI 2.0 hybrid and any convergence possibilities. Stay tuned, then. Thunder shower for fair use. Now I have cat problems, but I am here listening live. Running late, says Phil in Tesco's. So AFAs for once, right old dear, change Mondeo wishbone only for the oil to, bo- oil to burst out of the rubber mount right at the end of this, right at the end of a stubborn job. <sighs> Still relax late with the podcast. I like the fact you've had your Spanners out though, Phil. Good luck to you, mate. Uh, Mike Perrin, a rare live show for him from France. Busy holiday travel day and an hour later than usual finds everyone else asleep. Excellent. Cheap wine though, Phil. Let's be uh, sorry, Mike. Uh, let's be honest. Uh, Dedrick Baker, uh, all listening in there. David Two Brews here is a always for midweek motorsports. Says evening collective, 
evening, DTB. Uh, what else have we got? Jonathan Mayen. Uh, the, he says, also racing at the 750 Motor Club racing this weekend. We've escaped from Pembrey. And, oh, oh, Neil Gardner says he's, he's got AFAs, actually. He's having a curry cook tonight. Right, excellent. So that is, that is uh, the housekeeping. We want to hear your comments to at Specutainment. Coming up, uh, we will have your your take on what is next but i'm delighted to say that joining us now from daytona uh, is the president of imsa scott atherton on our hashtag ask atherton feature from the state of the series which happened on friday at road america i suppose i should properly say to you scott first of all thanks for joining us and uh, good afternoon and a good evening to you john uh, great to have your company scott thank you for uh, making time to talk to us. Uh, I know you did this last year during the weekend, but things were just so ridiculously busy uh, at Road America that we couldn't uh, do the same thing as we did last year. Before we get into the listeners uh, and viewers' questions, uh, using the hashtag AskAtherton to at Im- ask Atherton to at IMSA Radio. Um, just a couple of observations from me, Scott, about the weekend in general. Um, one of the things I'd say is even w- though Mother Nature didn't want to play ball this weekend, kudos to everybody concerned, including race control, for getting us any kind of race at all and getting us back to green, particularly for the afternoon race in the Michelin Pilot Challenge. I couldn't agree more. It seems this season we are destined to have weather impact just about every event. If my memory's correct, it's only been Long Beach that didn't have some sort of a uh, direct impact from Mother Nature. I happened to be in a an important meeting at the time that we went to the full stop in advance of the Michelin Pilot Challenge race. But I had no hesitation that everybody involved was completely on top of it and ultimately making all the right decisions, which turned out to be absolutely the case. To your point, um, a lot of very fast decisions had to be made to rejigger, reschedule, get the teams notified, and then get cars back on track as soon as we could. The race itself, especially the finish, could not have been better. It was exceptional by every measure. As I say, kudos to Paul Barfield and everybody in race control to make sure, and indeed the, the rescue and recovery, uh, the IMSA safety crews, to give us that extra four miles of racing, which gave us so much uh, entertainment. I thought they were spectacular again uh, at the weekend. We hope that they have quiet weekends, of course, but uh, when they don't, yeah. um, it's easy to point the finger. Well, I think this year they've been brilliant that we... We saw the same at Mid-Ohio, and they've done it again. We, we just got more racing, which I think everybody appreciated. So will you pass on our, our best from us as fans? And I, I add myself into that, but certainly that came through very yeah. strongly uh, over the... Sincerely th- well. Thank you, Scott. Um, State of the series plus the schedules announced on Friday night. We might as well uh, start with the tracks uh, and the schedules. Uh, no, no news is good news, it would appear, Scott, as you and I were talking about uh, on stage. Um, a, a few people, uh, Scott Cole included, said, uh, is there an opportunity or could there be an opportunity now that the, the new IMSA, the new era of IMSA has, has uh, consolidated itself to add an extra event or an extra track? N- not losing any of the ones we've got. Is, has that been thought about? Has that been discussed, Scott? 
It's a constant source of conversation. We do have several event promoters that would very much like to have an IMSA weekend, an IMSA event, some very high-profile venues. Uh, and I'll be very candid here. We are protective not only of our own capabilities, but equally, if not more importantly, so those of our teams. And they've made it very clear to us that the budgets that are required to run our current schedule is at its maximum right now. And when you look at the amount of racing that we do, not just the number of weekends, but the hours of racing with the Rolex 24, the Mobile 112, the Salem 6, Motul Petit Le Mans at 10, and then the balance of the schedule that goes on top of that, it's a tremendous amount of racing. So the temptation is constant. Um, we're always polling our manufacturer and our marketing partners to say, okay, of all the opportunities out there, where would you prefer to be? The good news is um, for the vast majority of them, they very much like and appreciate the schedule we have. There's parts of the country, parts of North America that we are currently not impacting. Mm -hmm. That would be the priority. But until we are in a position to justify an expansion of the budgets, uh, we are uh, fairly consistent and happily so with the schedule that we've got. Uh, and I mean, that you've, you've answered Steve Bisson's question really about more four, six or, or longer hour races. He said, I loved a few years ago when you had a four hour race at Road America into the, into the even tide there. But th- that's just putting, I presume, what you're being told from the paddock is that's just putting more hours on engines and chassis and things like that. I'm convinced I was being set up at Road America over the weekend because I couldn't walk 15 feet without a fan stopping me and saying, we want a longer race, which is great. I mean, the fact that they're that attuned and, you know, willing to step forward and express what they want. You don't always get that when we're at the race weekends, but we would love to add more racing. We'd love to add more events. I think Road America especially is ripe for a longer race. But again, we've got to look at how we would absorb that, both from a scheduling perspective. As you know, every minute of Mm. last weekend had something going on from 7 in the morning till 7 at night, literally. Um, So we've got to... We got to be careful how we uh, we manage our own expectations as well as those of the fans and our stakeholders. Does the opportunity exist, Scott, with the the different class structures that IMSA has, even in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship? To if we were to extend the number of events to be able to split split those classes as we do with the GTs at say VIR or or Lime Rock Park. So in effect, you have more IMSA weekends, but individual classes don't necessarily have more uh, more hours of racing it's possible and it's how we operate now as you know you know when we go to uh, long beach for instance it's just gtlm and dpi uh, when we go to vir and to lime rock it's gt only to be frank with you it, it's not our first choice mm-hmm. if we had our perfect set of uh, you know perfect scenario we would be all classes all the time everywhere we go it's not practical in some cases it's not safe um, yeah. which is why we are configured the way we are but 
the the priority isn't to find a way to have more IMSA weekends by splitting up the classes. Um, if we were to look to expand the calendar, I think we'd look for another opportunity for a full IMSA weekend event. The Michelin Pilot Challenge is a case in point there, uh, Scott, because that has become so successful that there are some tracks where you're almost running out of pit room. And, you know, there was talk at the start of the season about having to give priority to full season entrance. It's, it's a lovely problem to have, but that's part of the logistic consideration, presumably, of, of how you structure your season. Very true. And, and you have just touched on something that, could potentially be an option to split the Michelin Pilot Challenge away from right now their schedule is 100% mm. complementary to the WeatherTech Championship. We have had promoters approach us with the request to have a Michelin Pilot Challenge event. Wow. Uh, and it's uh, right now 2020 is is set, but I wouldn't rule it out going forward. Well, that's that's something to be excited about. A, a headline weight end for the Mission Pilot Challenge. I know they would love that. Uh, as and, and the thing is, it is a good series. It is a good... I mean, there are plenty of headline series that don't get the entries and don't get the excitement of that. So it's it's absolutely come of age and, and ripe for it, Scott. The racing coming out of the Michelin Pilot Challenge this year has been outstanding. And... If you heard my comments on the PA just before the start of the race, you know, we were telling fans, you know, this is the the Saturday feature and Mm. don't think for a second that this is anything less than what's coming tomorrow within the WeatherTech Championship. And it did not disappoint, even with the abbreviated time we had to deal with because of the weather delay. Uh, For anybody that hasn't seen the race, I won't spoil it for them, but it is quite possibly the most entertaining, competitive jaw-dropping last lap that I've seen in a long, long time. Maybe ever. Uh, the best four miles of racing I think I've ever had to call, and that says something in the time that I've, in the 20-odd years I've been involved uh, with uh, IMSA. Uh, let's move on to the future. You, it will be no surprise to you, uh, Scott, and this is Scott Atherton on the telephone uh, from the uh, IMSA headquarters at Daytona, speaking to us here on Midweek Motorsport, uh, that uh, DPI and the future of DPI uh, is foremost in the minds uh, of uh, your uh, your listeners and viewers and our listeners and uh, viewers. Um, some technical questions which you may or may not want to give us a, a, a steer on here and absolutely understand uh, depending on, on you know where you are in the in that timeline that you displayed. Um, uh, right turn lover, hello RTL uh, from uh, Central Europe from Switzerland. He tweeted in using the uh, hashtag AskAtherton. Has there been a a decision yet on which axle the hybrid that you're talking about will be acting on, whether it'll be a rear axle or front axle, or will that be an open choice uh, when when the regulations come out? Great question, and I don't want to go officially on the record, but I will share directionally uh, where things are headed in that regard. And it would be a a rear axle driven scenario. And the reason being that the ideal configuration would be to enable the existing chassis to be the foundation of DPI 2022. Yes. And the architecture of the car limits 
the application of hybrid power to a rear axle only Mm -hmm. delivery. Uh, There simply isn't the room to accommodate any anything other than that. So there is the possibility, and it's only that, because none of these regulations have been finalized. It's a very much a work in progress. But if there was to be a, a the decision made to enable new chassis to be designed and built, again, not the preference, but should that come to pass, then that would potentially open up the alternative. I don't see that happening, though, simply from a cost standpoint. Yeah, because you would have to retrofit front drive shafts and find space in the front for a a differential or some kind of electronic diff or something like that in the current chassis, which are, of course, LMP2 chassis, current LMP2 chassis. And Kevin Poulton, among others, mentions the chassis and says, you know, you've you've sort of mentioned that there, and it leads nicely into this. The the current ACO homologation and FIA homologation for LMP2 comes to an end um, shortly. How does that affect... Going forward, a DPI 2022, would you consider other chassis, possibly the new LMP2 chassis, or indeed bespoke chassis? It's it's a work in progress. This whole you know scenario surrounding the next generation DPI is a work in progress being led by Simon Hodgson and Matt Kurdock on our team here. These topics are actively being discussed, and as I mentioned a moment ago, our initial focus and expectation was that we would enable existing chassis to still be the foundation of DPI 2022, Mm -hmm. and until further notice, that is the direction. There is some discussion right now amongst the engineering staff because we're about to go to tender with the hybrid solution, uh, there will be a single hybrid supplier, and that's what this tender process will identify and confirm. But the the decision to retain the chassis or to enable what I believe would be existing constructors to design and build a new chassis. I don't know that we would want to open it up. It really wouldn't be fair to those that have been with us throughout this process, but no final decisions made yet. So you can continue to speculate on it and, and I'm going to leave it up to the experts that are understanding far more than I do of the technical minutia. And the, the goal was budget-driven to retain the existing opportunity uh, because when you go out and design a new bespoke chassis, a clean screen, so to speak, uh, it's very expensive. Uh, And and I would think, uh, and this is just me putting my business hat on for the moment, that the four current manufacturers of LMP2 would be quite happy to continue supplying chassis and spare chassis parts beyond the FIA ACO life. First of all, they'll still be homologated for things like ELMS for a year and a couple of years in the Asian Le Mans series. But effectively, that's still an income line for them. It's not like, oh, we've got a new chassis now. We're not going to service the old one. So any thoughts or fears that the the support is going to dry up? I just can't see that happening, Scott. We're working very closely with the ACO and with the four constructors, as well as the many manufacturers, the four who are involved now, as well as several others who are actively involved in the technical working group, to 
to address all of those issues. You know, the termination of the existing homologation, uh, the requirement of potentially new crash testing based on the weight of the uh, vehicle. Because when you add a hybrid system, you are adding mass. Very good point. There are opportunities to eliminate mass as a result of adding a hybrid. So the net impact could be very minimal as far as the car's uh, gross weight. But final details still to come. Uh, and the big question, I suppose, and it's an imponderable at the moment because we don't know uh, where LMP one 2020 is going to be it's not quite as advanced it would seem as it, it should be at this stage for a number of reasons not pointing the finger not seeing there's any blame here the ACO and the FIA are trying very hard to service a lot of different interests with that category and, and push it forward um, is there still an opportunity uh, a number of people saying what's the what's the status of the relationship between IMSA and the ACO? Has it cooled? Is it still the aim to get closer alignment and possibly convergence in some way, shape or form with uh, LMP LMP1 2020? I think it's been well documented by the media and, and several other examples that the ACO and IMSA share a common vision that the next generation top category, in our case, DPI 2022, in their case, hypercar, that they be able to compete together for the same honors at whatever event you choose to to name. So in other words, DPI would be eligible for Le Mans and hypercar would be eligible for the WeatherTech Championship and Daytona, Sebring, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now, that's much easier said than done. <laughs> and the real requirement here to fulfill or to realize that goal is for the technical experts of both camps to get together, not six months from now when everything's finalized, but right now to identify the hopefully subtle changes that could be made to both regulations, both sets of regulations that would enable that convergence or that coexistence, so to speak, to occur. I I can't speculate on where this is going to end. I know that from a, from a practical matter, from an economic matter, from every angle you can look at it, it seems to be a positive that the opportunity for both of these platforms to coexist would be better for all involved. Yes. Um, and that's continues to be our stated goal. I saw an article last week from Gerard Nouveau where he echoed more or less those same words. Yes. But the real onus right now is on the technical teams of both parties to identify how this could come to be or agree that it's not possible. Yes. Yes, yeah, that, that's that's very good. I, I, I mean, I've got to say, Scott, the IMSA technical team um, did a great job in balancing LMP2, standard global LMP2, as, as I used to call it, and DPI, two, two formulae that came from very different philosophies to the point where we literally had a version of each battling for the championship a season ago. So it's not 
beyond the bounds of possibility to make uh, two things from very different philosophies, as I say, be able to compete together. But I presume it's much easier to do that if in this planning phase of both of those future categories, it's being talked about, discussed, even just being considered, it would make life much easier to start that consideration now. No question. And, and I think it's, it's imperative. And when you talk about the senior most leadership on the ACO, that's President Pierre Fion. In our example, it's our chairman, Jim France. And both of those gentlemen uh, get along very well. I know they consider each other's friends. Uh, they recognize the value of the relationship that we have. The, the charge that has come from that level of both organizations is to, to roll up the sleeves and determine exactly what could be done. And as I say, it's, it's, we have to be realistic about this such that it could be a bridge too far. I haven't heard the, those words so I believe the expectation is still that with some compromise on both sides, we could, we could realize this shared objective. But you've got a very busy time of year right now with our season, really, I would say, at its peak. You know, we're operating almost every other weekend right now with championships coming down to final events. And then you have the ACO, the WBC, about to launch their new season. So, you know, the here and now requirements make it very difficult to dedicate the amount of time and effort needed to to sort through regulations. But we're committed on this end to uh, being part of the solution. And um, and I know that Simon and his team are working hand in hand with Vincent Bomasnil and his group to uh, to realize what we've just discussed. Yeah, good stuff. We've got Scott Atherton on the line here from Daytona. It's midweek motorsport answering your questions on the hashtag AskAtherton. Uh, we asked that over the weekend on IMSA Radio. Um, we, we've talked a lot about P2. Just to finish up the whole P2 thing, uh, Scott, you did make an announcement uh, on Friday, just gone there, about taking Daytona uh, out of the P2 Championship for the whole WeatherTech season on grounds of cost and we, we talked about that earlier on about how much running it, have, it has to do. Tom Firth among others uh, and Andrew Muggeridge just sort of asking for clarification now. How, is there not a danger says Tom that that could put more people off than it will bring in and and how does that affect says andrew the the future of lmp2 competition within imsa whether it's within the weathertech sports car championship or the endurance championship uh, in in imsa how does that affect that going forward well i'd be curious to hear the the answer to the question of what would cause a team to not want to be involved right. based on the announcements made on Friday. Because what we announced on Friday was that the Rolex 24 at Daytona would still be open and welcome to any LMP2 competitor, but it would be treated as a marquee standalone event and not count against points for the WeatherTech Championship. And this is a direct response to our core stakeholders that are currently competing in LMP2 
as well as others that are currently mm. not active but have been very outspoken of what it would take for them to become involved. And again, with, with great candor, it's budget. And when you look at the overall budget requirement to run an LMP2 WeatherTech championship season, because of the amount of racing that we've talked about already, it's a big number. So if you take that race out of the equation, and many would tell you that it, it may not be quite half, but it's pretty close to half of a season budget is absorbed with the 24 hours at Daytona. So by doing that, we enable the teams to be able to offer a full championship opportunity and by also, just as a sidebar, by also eliminating the Canadian Tire Motorsport Park event from LNP2, it's now a six-race spectacular schedule with very even spacing throughout the year, throughout the season making it that much easier for drivers who have day jobs and significant responsibilities away from the racetrack to be able to plan and to schedule accordingly. So it's all been, all these decisions were made with an eye toward boosting the car count, adding more content to LMP2. And as I say, I'd be very curious to understand why, you know, where's the speculation that this would be seen as a negative? I, I think just taking a big race out of the championship, I think that was the point that the guys guys were making. But but there's no reason for an LMP2 team not to come to Daytona. There's still a trophy. There's still a, a podium celebration. And, and key probably to the drivers, there are still beautiful, commemorative, highly sought after Rolex uh, Daytona Cosmographs. Do you think I sold that well enough there, there Scott? Uh, up for, well done. Up, up, yeah, you know, uh, to, to up for grabs. So it's it's kind of the best of both worlds. And for a, from a team's point of view, and I've spoken to a few of the teams, and I'm sure um, you have as well, it gives an additional business opportunity uh, where you might not have someone who wants to commit to a season that includes Daytona for a variety of reasons, but you might have somebody who just wants to do Daytona. So it's it's actually it's a it's a bit like the Sprint Championship and the Endurance Championship and the WeatherTech Championship in GTD. It's opening up the business opportunities for LMP2 rather than closing them down. I talked to our two team owners that currently are competing in LMP2 over the weekend, and both of them said that they had already had outreach, mm. one by phone, one by email, uh, regarding uh, next year. And, and just as you described, the expectation is Good. that the LMP2 car count for the Rolex 24 at Daytona will actually go up mm. because it's being treated as this one-off marquee Correct. event. and. You know, we uh, we've made a lot of decisions that's been that have been driven by paddock feedback, and this is the most recent example. And there's no blame or credit that that we're seeking here. It, it's just trying to do the right thing. You know, the adage in business is listen to your customers; they're never wrong. And um, I hope this is an example of that. Uh, just while we're on other categories, uh, the crotch belt, among others. Uh, has asked about the new category of GT2. Um, is it on the radar? Is there even room to add it to the 
series, uh, is it being considered in any way, shape or form? This The uh, new GT2 concept is another Stefan Rattel uh, construct with uh, highly powerful versions of uh, of road cars, far less aerodynamics, aimed squarely at the gentleman driver. At the moment, we've got cars from Porsche and recently announced from Audi. There will be some more uh, to be uh, announced, I believe there's a KTM car in uh, development as well, although how they're going to get 700 horsepower out of a 2-litre Audi 4-cylinder or 2.5-litre Audi 5-cylinder engine, I think that that's going to be interesting. Um, GT2, Scott Atherton. This is an easy one. No and no. Right, okay. Yeah, we, we are very satisfied with the class structure that we have. Uh, we very much appreciate the opportunity to have embraced the LMP or LMP3, the GT3 um, format. Uh, we are aligned with the ACO for GTE, and uh, and have our own DPI configuration, yeah. and no consideration right now to add anything else to the mix. Uh, let's. I want to go back just one because I've just realised that I missed something out. So I'm going to track back to the schedule, if you don't mind, before we move on to uh, media and television, which is the, the last of my categories here, uh, with Scott Atherton uh, taking some time out to be on the line with us. And again, thanks, Scott, for that. Carol Brink, who is in Monterey, uh, says, um, how do you think the IndyCar race at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca will affect? Could it cut into your attendance? And are there any plans for crossover promotion and events? I think there's one week between the, or in the week, rather, between the two events. This is a, a, bit, a bit later on this season. Another excellent question. And I will say that when initially approached for, you know, when we were first made aware of this opportunity, we were not in favor for obvious reasons. Right. We enjoy our relationship with WeatherTech Raceway, Laguna Seca, and always have. They've been on the schedule since day one. Yep. And candidly, we feel a bit protective about that fall time date that we've got there. And the idea of dropping an IndyCar race right next to it initially wasn't uh, a priority for us, for sure. However, lots of conversations between ourselves and IndyCar, ourselves and WeatherTech, who ironically, the venue entitlement there, as well as our title sponsor within our championship, um, persuaded us that this was worth experimenting with and giving it a try. Ironically, in the most recent conversation I had with Tim McGrain, who's the track president there, he shared with me that advanced ticket sales are up significantly. Wow. He wouldn't tell me how many, but he said shockingly so. Good. I said more than 10%, and he said several times that. Wow. So that is a very strong indicator, and they've positioned it as the super race week. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get these two incredible race weekends back-to-back. What a, if you have the ability to be in Monterey for a week, and as you well know, there's lots to keep you busy oh, between yeah. both weekends. Um, yeah, it's just spectacular uh, by all measures to have the WeatherTech Championship there one weekend and IndyCar the next. So uh, I hope our initial fears uh, turn into you know just the opposite of that, that we're pleased and happy to have embraced it, and we're going to make the most of it. Good. Excellent stuff, and, I, and I'm so pleased that that date's been held on the calendar. You and I have talked many times about date equity. Um, the uh, last category is TV, and uh, we've had a lot 
of submissions to hashtag Ask Atherton on IMSA Radio over the weekend about this. One stands out massively and, and almost encapsulates everything from Matthew Hindman, who actually submitted this via the uh, uh, Midweek Motorsport Listeners Collective on Facebook. Um, I, I'm, this, I think, gives us uh, a clear uh, insight, Scott, into how thoughtful the audience is for endurance racing in general and for IMSA in particular. I'll, I'll read you the highlights of this. It kind of encapsulates everything, and I'll throw it to you for a couple of answers. Uh, Matthew says, This season the domestic coverage has moved to NBC. It has been very good. A couple of the races... In the second half of the year, the NBC network have had NASCAR and so have been tape-delayed rather than live. Whilst I understand that this provides a great lead-in programme to the race, usually another motorsport series, I'd be interested to know what the series feels about about that. And going forward, uh, is it more important that race broadcasts are live or the race broadcast being tape-delayed? Would you ever consider changing the times of day or maybe running more races on Saturday to guarantee live TV coverage? Very well-constructed argument and uh, very uh, properly put there by Matthew. He's got a second question, but I'll put that to you first, Scott. I would agree with everything <laughs> that Matthew said as far as the uh, the caliber of the broadcast and what NBC has done. It, it is truly remarkable the the efforts that they've made, the investment they've made in presenting our product in a way that has not been done perhaps ever before. And it's reflected in the ratings and in the results that we've had. And not to go too much into detail here, but just so everybody understands what has been achieved to date, we're actually coming into the Road America weekend, we were essentially flat with last year's numbers, which most people would say, well, why is that so exciting? What makes it significant is last year going into Road America, we had already had two network broadcasts Mm. on Fox Network. This year, to date, we have not had any of our network opportunities. We were scheduled to have our Canadian Tire event on network. The rain out in Daytona, unfortunately, took that time slot from us and resulted in a, a very challenging situation for IMSA and for that broadcast over on CNBC. Last minute, nobody knew, hard to find. Bottom line is, our two network shows, which will be flag-to-flag live from WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca, and the first three hours of Motul Petit Le Mans are yet to come. So now, as I speak to you today, and this is breaking news, the ratings that were achieved in the Road America broadcast are 77% above our year-to-date average. Wow. I can't give you the increase over last year's broadcast, but I'm going to say it will be several hundred percent wow. in that we had one of the strongest ratings, one of the largest audiences. And let's give credit. And that credit was tape-delayed, we, we should a, say. That was tape-delayed coverage this, this week. Tape-delayed. NBC is very strategic. They look at all of the moving parts of how to get the best result possible. And for us to have followed immediately the live broadcast of the Watkins Glen Monster Energy NASCAR Cup, built-in road racing fan base, built-in NASCAR audience, and to then have the opportunity to showcase our racing, which we're very proud of and we Mm -hmm. think is very much worth watching, we're attracting new fans that way. 
Um, we're not alone. Uh, NBC does the same thing with IndyCar. Yes. They do the same thing with NASCAR. They mm-hmm. they look very strategically as to how to align. And if we had the opportunity to follow NASCAR every weekend, um, I won't say we'd take it up on every opportunity because we've got some races that just wouldn't make sense when yeah. you're broadcasting for 24 hours or 12 hours and the like. But when possible, like just happens, why not? And that's the priority. Um, we understand the frustration some have of not being able to watch the live race, but wait a couple of uh, hours and see, you know, see on television, or we've got live streaming available for the, the true fan that wants to go out of every race flag to flag. Uh, that's your dulcet tones that people get to follow every weekend. Well, and I should say as well that even even in the states, there's onboard cameras on the IMSA app and at IMSA TV. Whilst you don't get the the produced TV pictures, you still get the full IMSA radio call, and you can watch the onboards. Uh, obviously, for people outside the US where there isn't the network TV deal, uh, everything's flag to flag with no interruptions. And actually, the next question um, uh, uh, relates. Uh, relates to that, Scott, uh, and that is yeah, yeah. The other point is you for those in the states here, and I don't even know. I should know this, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. If you have authenticated through the NBC Sports app, correct, you can watch the live broadcasts every race, flag to flag. It's tremendous. The production values leave nothing. I don't know if that's available to folks outside the United States. No, they, I believe they, you can watch live through IMSA.com in our our, our app. It's geo-blocked here in the States. Yes. Yeah, absolutely right. And I know that a lot of people were doing that at the weekend because we got a lot of um, feedback from people. And plus, of course, if you're moving around in the States and you, you're so equipped, and uh, then Sirius XM has the whole of the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship race uninterrupted Correct. as well. So there's plenty. If, if, if you can't wait or you don't want to set your DVR or whatever and you want it live, live, there are other ways to do it. Um, the, second question, the second point that Matthew makes actually also sums up pretty much the other second point that most people make about television and that relates to the international uh, TV coverage uh, and the streaming. He says, first of all, he says, I've got to tell you, I think IMSA TV is brilliant. It's one of the strongest aspects of your series. He says, however, I am aware that an online streaming platform is only likely to get eyeballs from the people who are already fans and have gone out to seek coverage of the championship. Television, and whilst I acknowledge that linear uh, network television reach is falling, it still has the potential for people to, and he's put this in quotes, stumble onto the coverage of a race series. He says, I seem to remember uh, in earlier IMSA days, there was an app, one-hour highlight package of races produced for international audiences. I think it was produced and dis- distributed by Greenlight Television. You're spot on there, Matthew. Matthew. So you've got, you've got good knowledge. Um, would Mr. Atherton see any plan in the future to reinstate the one-hour highlight show that worked so well in previous years? Uh, short answer, yes. And we, we work directly with NASCAR Productions mm. to produce a lot of material that's post-production and, and the like. Um, we still have a relationship with Greenlight, and it's what, what Matthew, he seems, sounds like a very educated, astute fan for sure. Yep. Um, I will take that 
into sincere consideration and it's kind of embarrassing i'm I'm surprised we don't have that already but if it's uh not currently among the many offerings we'll i know we do a sights and sounds which is correct not an in-depth one hour show but uh it does cover truly the highlights of each event but uh i uh, unfortunately john i hate to do this to us but i've got such a busy schedule today Mm -hmm. and i've got to make my way across the street to a a, a set meeting but that was the last question that was the last serious question anyway robin liddell and pat long were asking questions about your race driving from robin and uh, pat long says you've got some domino's pizza stories to tell us but they can wait for another time i'd love to get those guys on a go-kart track and uh you know I would have to harken back to my teenage years, but it's like riding a bicycle. You never forget. Scott Atherton. A little bit of a match race. Let's do it. Let's do it. Scott Atherton, uh, thank you very much for once again subjecting yourself to Ask Atherton uh, here on Midweek Motorsport. And we'll see you at the next one, which is the Michelin GT Challenge at VIR. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, John. And thank you to all the fans for bringing so much passion to everything that uh, that that we do and in, in their response to it. Thanks again. Week Motorsport Series 14, episode number 30. And uh, delighted that we got that in before I had to nip off to his, his, his interview. Thank you for all your questions. I hope we got across most of them there. Joining us now on the line, en route to Phoenix, Arizona, would you believe? Let's hope the technology stands up here. Uh, founding editor of Sports Car 365, John DeGeese. John, are you with us? Yes, if you can hear me. Yes, uh, I can. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, brilliant stuff. Um, I, I know you heard most of that. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on a couple of points there. Um, I'll go back right at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. DPI 2022 hybrid, we're expecting that. A couple of people, including Jesse, saying, oh, I strongly disagree on having one supplier for the hybrid system. Limits the technology available to teams and fans and the manufacturers uh, and us watching their performance. Does it matter, ultimately, um, what what the technology is if the racing is good? I, I don't think so. I, you know, I think the only option for IMSA is to go with a single supplier because we've seen what's happened in LMP1, um, obviously that's to a completely different degree, but the moment you start mixing in bespoke systems for manufacturers, it's going to turn into an arms race. So I think IMSA is making the right call by having a, a single supplier system. Um, from what I understand, there's still going to be some tweaks available, um, basically in the terms of uh, software mapping and strategy and, and whatnot. Manufacturers could sort of put some some of their tools to work there and helping develop some of the software involved in these these hybrid systems that'll be coming online in 2022. So to answer that question, no, I, I think it's still going to produce great racing, and I think it'll still bring some technological development as well. I, I mean, ultimately, what we want to see is those close racing moments, those close finishes, and if I, I can place before the court the Michelin Pilot Challenge on Saturday <laughs> with, with good old-fashioned V8 technology in the Camaro and good old-fashioned backside driving feeling from the backside driving from from Robin Liddell I mean that that's what we want to see isn't it yeah absolutely that race was incredible I, I'm still speechless thinking <laughs> from about it um, it was just crazy but yeah I don't think adding a hybrid system is going to dilute that kind of racing in any way because what we're talking about this is not you know sure 
it's going to be giving some incremental power to these cars. Um, but I, and I think it's just going to add another element to strategy that's going to open mm. up the races even more. Uh, uh, just before we, we move on to uh, LMP1 and DPI convergence, just a couple of points that came up on the schedule. Scott, very, uh, very much talking about the... Uh, the back and forth, the exchange of information with the stakeholders, the teams and the sponsors about the amount of racing that they have now. I noticed it didn't rule out a, a, a longer race at Road America. And mm-hmm. also, very interestingly, talking about Mission and Pilot Challenge. Uh, uh, first of all, great to hear that other promoters and other tracks want IMSA to go there. Uh, uh, and, and how do they make that work? That's a nice position to be in. But not ruling out there, clearly from 2021 onwards, next year's schedule is set, the Michelin Pilot Challenge may be being a, a, a headline event on its own, which I, I kind of like to hear. I, I like that news as well, if that it comes to fruition, because... That series, like we've said, has been incredible. Um, the level of co- competition, the number of manufacturers represented in GS. Next year, we should have another manufacturer in TCR that should be announced shortly. So it's really building up to be a top-level sports car series in its own right. And I, I do, like from a, a, a journalist's perspective on the weekend, I feel bad that we can't actually give it more coverage mm. during a WeatherTech event because there's so much else going on. Good point. And if, if, if we end up going to some standalone races i think it's going to be an incredible opportunity for to, to sort of put that series in the spotlight um for a couple times of the year and i'm sure there's circuits that are more than willing to accommodate something like that and i think it would also help imsa's situation i wouldn't say it's a problem but their current situation of having so many so much racing on a single weekend yes. you know you know it firsthand it's non-stop <laughs> from friday through sunday basically and there's like no let up, especially when there's any kind of delay like we saw um, during uh, during last weekend at Road America. So if they're able to shift some of the other series over onto some additional weekends, and we've seen that with this calendar for next year with the uh, Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge starting at St. Petersburg, for instance, Lamborghini Super Trofeo adding a race in, in the streets of Toronto with IndyCar. They're already starting to do that mm. in some ways. And if we can put Pilot Challenge in for uh, maybe a couple weekends uh, standalone with some of the other challenge series together i think that would make for a really great show what what's your thoughts on adding either other events or longer races for WeatherTech, Road America certainly wasn't written out there. Quite a lot of people also talked in the hashtag Ask, Ask Atherton submissions about a longer race at, at Road, uh, excuse me, at um, WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca, which has happened in the past in the in the ALMS days. I mean, how much more can the panic stand? Because every hour that you run is, is cost nowadays in terms of engines, gearbox, etc. Yeah, and especially when you talk to some of the GTD teams or LMP2 mm. teams, they, they're really conscientious of the cost. And um, I remember the first Road America race uh, the ALMS had, I think it was 2001, it was a 500-miler there, mm-hmm. and that was a cool race. Um, obviously pretty close to what we had this past weekend with a, a green the flag. Space, you know? yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, um, yeah, it would be great to see some longer races, but I think you'd have to cut some other races out of the calendar, and then there goes part of the prop part of the issue mm-hmm. there so i'm personally i think it's probably in a good place where it is now um unless we we reach another level where these teams can afford it um you know maybe dpi 
uh, could have a standalone race somewhere instead, you know, mm. um, you know, when more, ma- if more manufacturers come on board in the future and it becomes more of a de facto factory class. Yes. That could be an option there. Maybe when the, the, the manufacturers could certainly probably afford an additional race, but the true pro-am teams would really struggle at this point. And it seemed as though Scott was saying, you know, we split the classes in WeatherTech when we really have to. We'd rather have them all together. The advantage is just tweeted in that spec team and said, if it ain't broke, dot, dot, dot. Yes, we absolutely, absolutely agree that. Let's move on to convergence. Let's move on to LMP uh, 2020, LMP1 2020, what a lot of people call Hypercard, hasn't got a proper name yet, so it's LMP1 2020, and DPI 2022. Scott, absolutely clear. We want to be part of the solution. It's up to the two technical departments to work out the subtleties between the two different philosophies and make that work, or to sit down and say, yeah, it, it isn't going to work. Let's let's just put it to bed. That that's a pretty clear that, that's a pretty clear statement from Scott that they want to be part of this if it's possible. Yeah, and I think he told me the first time about this right after Le Mans when they mm. when the ACO confirmed the hypercar regs, and I was a bit surprised. I, I thought at that point Scott would say, "Well, we're moving on. You know, we're going our separate ways." But no, he's he's remained firm on it. Um, speaking to Gerard Nouveau um, in Barcelona, he said the same story to me. So I, I truly believe there is a genuine, you know, desire to make this happen. But you and I both know that it's going to take a real you know, a real challenge to, to really get mm. this completely close to convergence. I, I think the closest what we can do is perhaps, you know, have two different categories with similar performance levels, but don't have them in the same class. Maybe something like IMSA could offer the hypercar cars a class, you know, to, to, to run at Daytona and Sebring. ACO in return could offer DPIs to race at Le Mans, and, and mm. they'll be in their own categories with very similar performance levels, but that way you wouldn't mess up the BOP that each series already is constructing. You know, I, I, that would be my suggestion on the best way to move forward with that. There, there, there was an IMSA class at Le Mans up until, well, you say, yeah, I say exactly. relatively recently. I, I mean, within my lifetime, which is not actually that relatively recently. What I said to Scott there, and 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 I and I, this is a this is a point that I want to want to push. LMP2 and DPI, two very different philosophies, were balanced adequately, more than adequately, more than adequately, by Simon Hodgson and his technical team at IMSA, a data-driven balance of performance to the point where we almost got an LMP2 car winning the championship. Now, the manufacturers didn't like that. Let's be absolutely clear about that. But it proves, if nothing else, John, that that the IMSA team at least can do that and can look at the bigger picture so having this conversation right now whilst everyone is still finalizing the technical regulations surely that gives them a better possibility of of getting these two philosophies being able to be brought together than if they just were, were ended up with a as if we ended up with a fate accompli and then had to do it sort of post the regulations yeah, you're right on that point for sure. But the other point that I have to look at is that DPI and LMP2 were based off of the same platform. That was LMP2. Yes. So what we're looking at Hypercar, that's a new prototype platform. And then throw in the production-based cars with the Aston Martin Valkyrie that's already been announced. We don't even know what that's going to really even look like yet. Okay, we're 12 months out from the first mm. race, and, and that's a bit up in the air. But trying to ba- just for the ACO themselves to balance production-based hybrids 
production-based hypercars with prototype hypercars, some of them with hybrid systems, some of them without. You can have the hybrid system on the front axle. You can have the hybrid system on the rear axle. Mm. With a DPI 2022, which is going to be a rear axle-driven hybrid, you know, I guess it could be possible. But I think the problem is there's too many variables with the ACO and FIA's formula right now. And, and that's where I sort of remain a little skeptical on getting everything 100% equal. If you didn't have the production-based hypercars that the ACO has opened up the regs for, I think mm. it would have been a lot easier. Uh, do, do you think that the current manufacturers in LMP2 will continue to be interested in... It, it sounded to me as though Scott was seeing there when we when he when he talked and he said nothing uh, no listen give me due he said nothing is decided but it seemed to be that they're leaning on what are the current chassis and modifying the current chassis and and not even potentially looking at whatever comes in lmp2 2.0 which we don't even know what that's going to look like right yet because the tender document hasn't even gone out but it, it looks like they've already uh, clearly had some kind of conversation with the four current suppliers who want to com- continue to be part of what is currently dpi and what will become dpi 2.0 yeah um those four constructors have all been in the working group meetings as far as i know and um, you're right. I, I believe what Scott said is true that, you know, that we'll see just those four continue. Um, what we're sort of expecting with DPI 2022 is more of an evolution rather than a revolution. And by keeping with these existing LMP2 chassis, I think it keeps the costs down for the existing ma- manufacturers and also for the new manufacturers that are likely to come in as well, because they're not going to have to create a bespoke chassis or work, you know, create a new platform you know or subsidize some of the costs for a new prototype mm. say from a Janetta or from a uh, another constructor out there Correct. that may not be in, involved right now with with the four the four that are available so i think this is a wise move this sort of limited imsa's possibilities with the hybrid system for instance because the current lmp2 chassis doesn't have enough room to put a hybrid on the front axles for instance so they've been forced to go to the rear that's not necessarily a bad thing because we've seen front wheel drive you know technically four-wheel drive hybrids always lead to, you know, extreme costs, um, rising costs, as we've seen with with, with LMP1. So, um, you know, the only thing that concerns me is that, you know, this is another five-year window here. You know, we started with DPI 1.0 back in 2016, and now we're going to be getting a new formula, an updated formula, a new formula in 2022. That goes for another five years. So it's close to a decade with this base chassis, and it may get a bit old by then. But I don't see any other way IMSA can handle it right now, because especially no. as you pointed out, there's no new regulations for LMP2 globally on the horizon yet, even though that's supposed to be in 2020. Um, ACO, FIA are extremely backlogged with the whole hypercar thing right now. Yeah, and I take what Scott was saying as well, which I've got to say I hadn't even considered. It, you know, if you put a, a, a hybrid on and you increase the weight, you might have to crash test that car again. Mm. You can't get the weight yep. back down. Um, all, all in all, great questions from the IMSA TV and IMSA Radio listeners, and and I and I'm not dodged at all by Scott, including saying, "What? What? I can't believe we don't have a, an hour-long international uh, highlights program." I'm going to look into that and see if we can reinstate it. Great. I mean, that's the kind of access we get with Scott Atherton, who, let's not forget, is the president of IMSA. Yeah, it's it's great to see how open and transparent IMSA has become. I still remember those first couple of years post-merger and. 
things were a bit on the edge. Um, frankly, I, there was unhappy times in the paddock for some teams. We saw some competitors go off to Europe. We saw some teams go over to other series in America. Now it, you sort of see all those teams sort of trickle back into IMSA, and, and there's a reason why. I think it's because of the stability, the professionalism, um, the the technical staff, their technical department is, is almost second to none. Sure, there's always concerns about BOP. We saw some of that this past weekend with, with the DPI class probably. But, you know, you're always going to get that from time to time. But I think when IMSA's really taken a, a first-class lead in in how they've been able to run their championships, and, and it really starts right at the top with, with Scott Atherton. Uh, John, thank you very much. I know you've pulled over on your way to Phoenix uh, this weekend, so thanks for that. Great to, to have you back on the show, and thanks for your help at the weekend when we're in the rain delay as well. That's John DeGeese, the founding editor of Sportscar365. Thanks, John. Yep, thanks again. Glad to be on. Still to come on Midweek Motorsport. And is there any chance you could bring some dessert to the VO booth, please? Oh, actually, dessert. I've not even had any myself if i uh, if i'm honest a uh, great stuff I've in the made first a chocolate fondant oh chocolate fondant mm. Mm. my new oven <laughs> have you have you done that from where you are yes it's on the network isn't it yes yeah i fantastic. can control it from from computers and phones it's great uh, yeah Anyway, get on with what's on the show. Yeah, okay. Uh, To come in the second half of tonight's programme, we'll be speaking to Shea Adam, who's by a lake. And we'll have some more of the week's news in multisport. And, oh, yes, your comments, please, on what you've heard already. At Spectatainment, plus Nick Damon on two and four wheels. Well, not him, but he'll be talking about action that's happened on two and four wheels. All in the second half of episode 30 of series 14 of Midweek Motorsport live on RS1. Midweek Motorsport on RS1. All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. And we're joined by Nick Damon. Good evening, Nick. Evening world. Are, are you by a lake, Nick? No, I'm. I'm. I'm by. Uh, oh, I'm. I'm in Milton Keynes. You're by a roundabout. <laughs> Several <laughs> roundabouts. I went. I went to Italy, uh, as you know, last week. I went to hire the car, and the very nice man says, "Where are you from?" I said, "Milton Keynes." Ah, oh, where Red Bull come from? Where are you? Ah. See, Milton Keynes not found. There's now Red Bull for your F1 fan in Italy. It's famous for more than ca- concrete cows and roundabouts. Red Bull. I should be driving past their factory um, every day from, the, uh, from next week. I'll make sure they haven't left the wind tunnel on by accident. He only said that because uh, Ferrari are unhappy with Red Bull because uh, they are a better team at the moment. But more on that in a moment because we're going to start with two wheels. Hooray! And, oh. uh, <laughs> it was the, Hooray, Czech, the Czech Republic yes. that was the uh, return. Uh, no. Do you know? Yes, I do know. Uh, return for MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3 after their summer break. That is a fantastic track for bikes. I, I was there for the first time myself this year for 24 hours. For car race. Yes, and it's a completely different track for bikes, Nick, isn't it? I mean, it's, just, it's, it's very Mugello-like, isn't it? It's got those sweeping chicanes that aren't stop-start chicanes. They are quick corners. 
Yeah, it is. It is. But of course, Bruno always was a bike circuit. Yeah, yes, we, we, we had that. We had that tour around, didn't we? And we found the memorial. But um, actually, not, not so much. But it is a memorial. It's a memorial to two, two, the two guys who were killed in a car accident, oddly. But it is a um, celebration of the winners of all the uh, the moto, the Grand Prix on the larger circuit, isn't it? It's a fantastic mm. thing. We, we fell over during our, our uh, morning off after the uh, Bruno Twenty Four Hours. But yeah, it is. It, 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 it's another great bike circuit. It is. It is. It isn't that bad as a car circuit. It is better as a bike circuit, as you say. It's one of those tracks just seems to fit the, the flow of a bike in many ways better than a car yeah and in addition to getting pole position fastest lap and uh, a race win a new lap record for marquez but not uh mark marquez but alex marquez in moto two that was a good yeah. race yeah i didn't see moto two but i did see alex marquez is doing he's doing well and he's just been off for another year in moto two is we old <laughs> Uh, Moto3 was very close, wasn't it, it John? Was ridiculously close. There was 127 bikes going into the last two corners that had a chance to, to win. No, no, it wasn't. The top quite... eight were separated by seven-tenths of a second <laughs> at the finish line. I, I watched it all on catch-up after the weekend. Uh, using You see, I wasn't making fond, chocolate fondant remotely. I was setting my DVR remotely uh, on my way back because I'd, I'd realised I'd forgotten to do anything. Uh, and uh, so when I got back on Monday evening, that meant first thing uh, Tuesday morning when I got up and I was making breakfast for the responsible adult, I had a chance to catch up on everything that I'd missed over the week, including the Grand Prix, the F1 Grand Prix, which I'd managed to stay away from the result of quite extraordinarily. Um, I, I, the, the whole weekend, I mean, that was... They said there was 80-odd thousand there, and there was definitely 80-odd thousand there. What a great place to go and watch bikes. Everything was was superb. Um, an absolute Ducati circuit for MotoGP. So, obviously, a Honda won. Well, yeah, because Mark Marquez won, because he's in a different league to everyone. Two and a half seconds flashing, qualifying, drying. And then on the shortened race due to the um, wet-dry conditions... Um, he just won it with relative ease, only by two and a half seconds. But it's it's not, you know, it's not really even a competition now. It's just, uh, is Mark Marquez going to win or is he going to fall off? Well, he's fallen off once and won the rest, really. Mm. Um, yeah. Again, no criticism of him. Uh, a lot of criticism of the rest of the, team, the, rest of the people behind him. Um, Dovey got second, Jack Miller got third, so it's two Ducatis, and Alex Rins, Carl, Carl moans more than Gary Paffett, Crutchlow, uh, <laughs> was in fifth. And uh, then uh, Alex... It's not. He's moaning all the time now. Cal. He's a very, very moany man. And Gary Pavitt um, stopped moaning recently. Well, that's because or he stopped doing it to, so publicly. You know why? It's, he, wants to, he doesn't want to draw attention to, to anybody about how where he's driving. I think he's managed to come 11th in in Formula E every single time. Can he's I, beaten I, his teammate in all of them. I just want to nip back very okay. quickly to Mortal Three, which I know you didn't see, but um, Nicola uh, Antonelli started from the pit lane and ended up, I think, one spot off the podium in an unbelievable. Right, uh, Morton or two, that was a, a elbows out as well. Every single race at the weekend. All right, I, I know that Marquez won, um, but it was still a good race. He, he didn't have it all his own race. He, he, he looked more comfortable than a Honda has before at that circuit. I mean, Honda at the end of last season, Nick, they knew they didn't have the best bike in a straight line. But it looks now as though whatever they did in the off-season and whatever they've done since has given them parity in straight line speed with, with the rest of the field and in, in, with Ducati in, in particular. 
Yeah, I mean, I think they've gone away, found a few horsepower, probably tweaked the aerodynamics, worked out the drive, which is the key thing. He's drive out the corner, managed to make it all work, um, and therefore are very, very close to Ducati now, or, or with them, and therefore way ahead of Yamaha and a bit ahead of Suzuki. And they've got Mark Marquez, and a bike effectively built for it. I mean, one of the things that Cal Cratcher was, was moaning about was that, that only Marquez can ride the bike because you have to have it at um, ridiculous angles of lean to get the most out of it. So that was his first moan. His second moan was that uh, Takagami shouldn't get a works ride because he doesn't deserve it. Uh, and there were several other moans as well that weekend. I think those are the ones that stand out. So he is the new Gary Paffitt. Let's go on to MotoGP and some driving news for 2020 Rider. already. Riding news for 2020. Because uh, Sam uh, Lowe's uh, has said he's leaving Grassini. Uh, and not surprisingly, because he was 11 laps down and uh, failed to finish uh, on Sunday. Uh, and he's going to a different team, but he won't tell us which one. It's Mark VDS. Yes. <laughs> I love the matter-of-fact way that you just sort of threw that in there. I, I didn't even know there was a secret about that. Sorry, I, I, if I've broken a confidence, I haven't, because I saw, I saw it written Every, down. Everyone days. knows it's Mark VDS, it's just it hasn't been confirmed yet. Mm. I can't say. I, 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 Sam, yeah, well, hooray. No, it doesn't matter, really. He's not going to become MotoGP champion, so hopefully he can, well done him for earning a living. He can be Moto2 champion. Unlikely. There was a test at Bruno, hasn't? And there's been a test at Bruno um, Monday, yeah. I think, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And um, was it Johan Mir really hurt himself. I know one of the Suzuki drivers really hurt themselves and got themselves airlifted hospital. Oh, really? Uh, Yamaha were trying out the first iteration of their 2020 bike. Um, and Fabio Quattararo, who you can't say, the Frenchman. I can't that. He was uh, he was he was quick. He was he was faster than Vinales. And, yes, and Rossi. Yeah, Rossi, the new bike wasn't much better. And the other thing is, the Yamahas have been quick on just about all the uh, post-race test days, um, which obviously is not particularly useful. Well, it is for next year, possibly, maybe. No, they keep being faster, but they're not fast at any of the races. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a situation. I mean, yeah, Yamaha are in a mess, um, and that's undeniable. And uh, it's Austria uh, this weekend, isn't it? So they haven't got a lot of time for the turnaround. It's not very far. No, I know that. It's literally just across the border. I know. I've been to both of them. So it was Quattararo, Vinales, Morbidelli. So three Yamahas there. Alex Rins was fourth in the test in the Team Suzuki on the Team Suzuki X Star bike, only by a couple of tenths. Then Cal. What's that noise? Uh, as it goes by, it's got a high-pitched mind. Sure, it wasn't bad. Mm. Uh, then Valentino, <laughs> then Johan Mir, then Mark Marquez, all of six tenths away, then Francesco Bagnaia, and then Daniello Petrucci was your top ten in the test. I kind of wonder why Marquez goes... You wonder why he goes so slowly in the test, and then he doesn't. Have, yeah, and then tops every session. Are they, are they just putting lead on the bike, or is he, you know, what is it? But, yeah, I mean... Um, they have a massive march, and they have a you know they have a, a a rider who can who can control that particular bike. I mean, I think Lorenzo should be back relatively soon, but he can't ride the bike. So they are they are they're only the only downside they have is they have a a single person spearheading their their charge at uh, Honda, and, and uh, you know, as long as he stays healthy, they're fine. Sorry, Tim, go ahead. I was just going to say, so eighty thousand people at Bruno. Yeah, easy. And forty thousand people at Thruxton on Sunday. Oh, just before we leave, just before we leave, Moto GP. Sorry, yes. that's what, that's why I paused. So Red Bull Ring, 
that's another Ducati circuit, traditionally. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the most Ducati circuit, I think. It's turn around, blast it up the hill, stop, turn, blast it down the hill, stop, so turn, swoop, swoop, stop, blast it back up the hill again. We expect well, Vizioso to finish second again, then? Well, yeah, pretty certain. Can I just can I just point out how well Suzuki are doing on the stop and turn? That Suzuki is is stopping and turning very very well indeed. I, I, it's the blast bit. It's the blast bit that they're struggling with. Yes, I'll give you that. Yeah. Stop turn blast. It's not carrying any speed really, isn't it? That's okay. That's the, the key point about it. Okay. Fine. But you know, uh, we will see. But I, my guess is that he, despite everything, Marquez will still win. <laughs> He almost dropped it in the race again. The front end went away and he picked it up again whilst he was, was like barely lost half a second in doing it. I mean, it's just extraordinary. When you watch him, particularly if you um, have the ability to watch the onboards and, iso- and isolate them, then it's just... I mean, you and I ride bikes, Nick, and I've never um, done a lot of track days. I've done a couple of track days on other people's bikes. Um, on race bikes as well, but but I don't think of myself as a, anywhere like anything other than uh, a very 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 subpar rider. I just watch what he does, particularly when the he has accidents that then he he just avoids. For I mean, it's extraordinary when the front end's dropped under him and he still picks it up. Yeah, it's a, it's a combination of. Um some sort of innate ability coupled with with hidden strength and the reflexes of a, of a not just scalded cat but a heavily uh, attacked cat by a fire um, uh, by a flamethrower I would say um, but yeah I mean I think I, I, the golden rule that I, I was always told about motorcycles is don't worry about the rear end it, it's fine but if you, if you lock the front up you're off that's yeah, it you've got correct. Um, that appears no longer to be a rule no. uh, with, with him meanwhile yeah, the rear is fine uh, meanwhile, in British Superbikes, Tim? Uh, record crowd at Thruxton, 40,000 or more. Uh, saw a brand new winner in the championship, Nick. Uh, Josh Brooks, was it? Uh, he won race two, but race one was uh, won by Andrew Irwin. Andrew, what? sorry, yes. I, 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 On the sorry, Honda. I've got, yes, he won for first time. And uh, Scott Redding was second, and then Scott Redding was sort of second in the second race, then got disqualified or penalised uh, and ended up 22nd. So he's lost a chunk of his lead. He was given uh, a 15-second penalty initially. For not doing the long lap. For, uh, yes. And then, uh, yes, that's right. So he finished 22nd in a race which only had 23 starters and one <laughs> DNF. Mm. So it was last. It was, a short, it was a race that was short. It was very it was last. Nice. It was a shortened race, yes. Uh, down from 20 laps to 13. Um, so, yeah, so it, was all, it all went a bit so wrong. That kind of worked um, in the uh, favour of Josh Brooks because that Ducati probably wouldn't have won if it had to do all 20 of them. Yes, I mean, the thing is really, is that he's, uh, you know, it's, it, it doesn't really matter he lost his points league because the points league doesn't really matter. The only thing is he's lost perhaps the two, a two-point, uh, whatever, whatever, whatever head start they get for a second place on the podium, because they, they zero it all. Then give you, is, it, is it 10 for a win, five second and two for third? I don't think it's five, that much. Three. I think it's three, two and one, isn't it? It was five, three, and one, five, two, and one, um, and then they, they, they when they go for the race to chase. So, so the, the if you've won everything, you start with about a sixty-point lead, don't you? But if you just nah, averagely, you start about a twelve-point lead. Uh, Scott Redding does still have a twenty-point lead uh, in the main championship over his teammate, uh, but uh, big news for that team emerging today. Yes, 
They've lost their sponsor. Yes. Bizarre that it's been announced in the middle of the season that um, this is Paul Bird, of course, um, who's been involved since God was a lad. Uh, used to run the Storbot team as well, of course. The PBM Wiser Ducati BSB race team. Uh, Wiser will conclude their four-year partnership at the end of the season. Why in the middle of the season, though, uh, Nick? It, 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 I mean, have they fallen out? Or is that to give Paul Bird the opportunity to get out there and, and find another sponsor? My, I, I think they would have known a long time in advance. Um, I don't understand the announcement at this point. It doesn't seem to make an awful lot of sense at all, really. Um, unless Paul Bird already has another sponsor. Um, and well, no, unless another... he doesn't, though. It's, it's a way of saying space for rent without seeing that, isn't it? And, and I mean, th- there's no suggestion, and, and, I, and I put that to you, but there is no suggestion that there's been a, a falling out. They've come no, to the end. They've come to the end of, the, of their sponsorship contract, yeah. And that's four years. It was originally only a three-year contract, and they extended Plus it by one. a year. So Correct. They, they obviously weren't unhappy. There are Correct. elements of diminishing returns with any um, long-term sponsorship deal. Um, you know, sometimes going away and coming back or going away and doing something else, thinking, you know, it actually is more effective than staying on the, staying on the bike because for a year people still think you're on it um, in their mind. So, you know, it, there, there are a number of studies done about how long you should sponsor something. And even if you love the people involved, it's best to take a break because it has more impact if, if and when you come back. Uh, we also have a driver confirmation for the rest of this year. If you remember a couple a of weeks ago, sorry, a rider. A couple of weeks ago, we told you about the uh, switching away from Kawasaki of uh, Glenn Irwin. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, his seat at the uh, um, JG Speedfit Kawasaki team has been taken by Hector Barbera. Oh, yes, Exit Motor GP. Mm-hmm. Very good. He said, <laughs> I am very happy for this. Sometimes in life you have bad news, but sometimes you have very good news. You didn't seem, but didn't take the world on fire on the weekend. But I suppose you've never been to Thruxton before. And never been to a British superbike. It's a bit of a baptism of fire, isn't it, really? Mm. Yes. Uh, just before we move up, is that motorcycle news, Doug? That's all of motorcycles. Right, before we move on, uh, this from the responsible adult says, hang on a minute, you've moved on. I wanted to hear how Tim made a chocolate fondant, fondant remotely. With his phone. Oh, okay. Adrian Michael Reese says... I think responsible adult would be very impressed with my sticky. new oven. Mm. Uh, Adrian Michael Reese says, wasn't Bruno's modern layout designed to be used for the first quartz Eastern European Formula One slot in the mid-80s, but the Hungaro ring was given the race instead, Nick? No, because they were still running um, the big touring car races on a massive track up to 87, and Hungaro ring started in 85. Oh, very good. That was the track that we drove then. Not mm-hmm. the 1930s track, which was even that longer was too still. Long. Yeah. We, we, we drove the touring car track. Which still took us three quarters of an hour to get round. Got a couple that. of decent corners on that as no, well. No, lots. <laughs> I mean, fantastic. Abs- coming up through the villages. And when you see the old footage that's still available on Duke Video, by the way, who are having a big sale at the moment, our colleagues uh, and partners at Duke Video. So uh, worth having a... A look at that at the moment. You're listening to Midweek Motorsports, Series 14, Episode 30. Lots of good uh, comments coming in from Scott Atherton, who joined us earlier on from Daytona in our Ask Atherton 
slot. Um, pretty much, well, no, in fact, all complimentary at the moment. Good to hear Scott Atherton on the show. Did, did, Thank you for did answering. You, um, just this question. This is a question for Shay. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you ask Atherton about why the batting collapsed in the second innings? Yeah, well, uh, Fran Blaisdell, in fairness, did say, "What about the dirt in your pocket?" You know, which mm. uh, which was reasonable. Yeah. yeah. Which was re- reasonable. <laughs> but we had a bowling collapse in the first innings and a batting collapse in the second innings. I, I didn't feel as though I could ask Scott that. I thought <laughs> thought it might have been outside of his area of expertise. You could uh, have brother Mike though. Yeah. Midweek Motorsport Series 14, Episode 30. Shall shall we move on, Tim? And, and do we I have to hover on. near a theatre here? Uh, if you could just reduce them by about 12 decibel, because I say we move on to Formula One. And a report in the Times of London. Oh, the Times of London. Yes. Hey. That Liberty Media is talking to Saudi Arabia about bringing Formula One to the kingdom. And Saudi Arabia is talking about how much money they'll give them. Uh, Um, There is calendar news, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, hang on, I'll get to that. Formula One teams have been consulted on the potential product project and asked about their views on racing in Saudi Arabia which is often decried for its lack of human rights that's not even open that can of worms on one hand F1 will be eager to to grow its uh, audience in the Middle East where the sport already enjoys a presence in Bahrain and Abu Dhabi but on the other that that first one's not exactly a bastion of human rights is it Uh, Bahrain can I just give you Bahrain oh China uh, mm-hmm. Russia, China, Belgium, China, Australia. China, China kills more of its citizens than any other country. Even, even when don't, don't, numbers, don't. Let's know, stop it. They just can't. Let's just point out that the United Nations list of the uh, twenty worst offenders uh, for human rights. Fifteen of them have got Grand Prix. Bahrain was not on that list. What? But Belgium and Australia were. Right. Okay. Belgium. Yes. What's Belgium done wrong? Uh, it's. <sighs> about its response to immigrants or something like that. Right. Uh, Saudi Arabia's already hosted Formula E. Um, and they're and talking... people turned up. They're talking about building a new uh, track in Riyadh uh, as part of the Saudi Vision did, 2030 didn't, initiative. Didn't Faisal uh, be involved with them? Faisal bin Laden get involved with a, pro- with a track that's been built already? They got, they got a, I thought they had like a, a quite a good track they'd built, built out and out there just finished like this year yes they have but there's going to be a new one and okay. uh, the layout features an area where cars race underneath a giant swimming pool yes because racing underneath stuff is the thing now isn't it it's under a hotel or a grandstand like Singapore or a hotel like Abu Dhabi um, do it all underground then we wouldn't have to watch it which would be great mm. I think they should race underneath the arches I dream my dreams away. Matt's moving on. So uh, tomorrow. 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 You, you're a bit slow there, Nick. I beat you to it. You know I was allowed. <laughs> Two songs back to back. I mean, you put adults going to be apoplectic. Go on. Uh, tomorrow, uh, it will be announced that the Mexican Grand Prix will continue for a further three years. This is unexpected, Nick. Well, it isn't. But what is unexpected is they've also um, signed another deal with um, with Barcelona. Such a beautiful so horizon. What we thought was we were going to, we were going to lose two out of three of of Germany, Barcelona, and uh, Mexico. And Mexico was looking better because they had a bit more support from local businesses. Uh, but we aren't going to lose two out of three. We're just losing one 
uh, which is Germany. So there's been a big negotiation amongst the teams about going 22 races next year. Um, mainly, it seems, based on the fact that they're going to still have three engines. They're going to have to make the engines a little bit more reliable, and, uh, so they have one have to run at eight races. So that appears to be agreed. They're going to do 22 races. It's getting silly. Um, but that's what's going to happen. I think the only, the only, the only thing the team said, they, were, they didn't want any triple headers. Claudia Scheinbaum, the mayor of Mexico City, said, I want to share some good news that I just received. This is good news for the city. Well, the city, wasn't the city who poured the money out in the first place? It brings tourism, it brings income, it's also good for the country. I think, I think when it comes to Mexico, because they've put in such a great show, and, it, and, it, and they obviously love the sport, I couldn't agree with you more. I think Mexico deserves a Grand Prix. If you look at yeah, a, lot of the, a lot of the places we go to, you know, the, it's not really supported by the locals apart from with large waters of cash. Whose contract is worthless? Everybody's. Any any contract in F1 is worthless uh, unless someone sues for it or it's Daniel Ricciardo, in which case it's worth 10 million quid to his previous manager. Very good. <laughs> I haven't read my contract because it's worth zero as far as I'm concerned, says Kimi Raikkonen. Oh, yeah, Raikkonen going, are you allowed to do dangerous sports? Bah! Basically, is his answer. Yes. And then we were shown doing the dangerous thing of climbing up um, a, sort of a scaffold that was sort of, sort of a ladder on the side of a pool and jumping back at least four feet into water. The wife and kids, it was a, it was a nightmare. That was the best picture or clip they could find to go with that item on the on, on a various side. Um, yeah. Can I, before we get into real news, can I, can I just uh, issue a warning to the collective? Yeah. We now have a period of four weeks without any racing. Mm-hmm. Do not believe anything, anything. you read. <laughs> it's all made up. <laughs> Literally, it'll be the clickbaitiest clickbait stuff ever, or option B, a rehash interview that they did over the last three races and have saved on their micro-recorders. Nothing is happening. At all. <laughs> it's all rubbish. Please don't believe it. Well, what hasn't stopped during this summer break, Nick, is uh, 18-inch tyre testing by Formula 2. Mm. Okay, good. Uh, they've been... They've <laughs> been oh, that, you were Rickard. underwhelmed there. I think it's fair to say you were underwhelmed with that, Nick. Well, when, when, when 18-inch tyres, I thought that's slightly interesting. When you said Formula 2, it went, it, my interest level went from about 4.5 to nil. Okay. The uh, the development car has been out at Paul Ricard today and has done 218 laps on slick and wet tyres. Excellent, well done. Did they wet the track for the wet tyres or did they just burn them off in two laps? Well, I saw some photos uh, and uh, it didn't look particularly wet at Paul Ricard. Ricard has got sprinklers though, it hasn't does, it? It does, so yeah. they must have used them. Yeah, all right. Uh, you listen to the Midweek Motorsport Series 14, episode 30. Nick Damon is on the line. This was our hashtag Ask Atherton episode thank you for all of your submissions for that we're talking formula racing at the moment there was a grand prix at the weekend nick oh, what nick. a classic well, hang on there wasn't a Excuse grand prix me? at the weekend it was an endurance race wasn't it It was all about tire strategy it was endurance it was a, a little shrunk in the wash endurance race that wasn't formula one and who's got the best strategy <laughs> both of them have because that was that was a strategy built on that's all we can do, and Red Bull once we're, we're back into corner and couldn't do anything about it. Hang on, wait, you and us. I'm not saying just you, Nick. 
we have criticised Mercedes-Benz for not being able to find the racetrack with a GPS and a searchlight in the past. Uh, however, strategically, they played a bit of a blinder this weekend because it looked like they were going to go at the end on the hardest compound that they had and then they decided not to and they did catch Red Bull napping and Red Bull didn't have the confidence in their driver that Mercedes had in Lewis so Red Bull don't have the confidence in Max that Mercedes have in Lewis that's what it boiled down to wasn't it I'm back can you hear me now yes you hadn't gone away Oh, I had. No, I hadn't heard you. I've, I, I literally had nothing from you for about uh, 35 seconds. All right. What, what I said was we've criticised Mercedes plenty of times in the past. They played a strategic blinder this weekend, caught Red Bull napping. And what it boils down to is that Mercedes-Benz have more confidence in Lewis than uh, Red Bull have in Max. Isn't that the case? No. No, it boils down to the fact that track position is king in uh, Hungary. You don't give up track position without a reason. Um, and literally, it was, it, uh, um, so they had nothing to lose by stopping Hamilton at that point because the abject failure of the other four members of the Big Six Club, Valtteri mm-hmm. Bottas, again, can't drive in traffic. Um, Pierre Gasly can't drive. And Ferrari were just dreadful. Not the drivers, not their fault. The car just wasn't working there. But why so wouldn't suddenly... you back? Why wouldn't you back Max, who allegedly is one of the greatest drivers of all time, TM, who can overtake better than everybody else, TM? Mm-hmm. And why, as soon as you saw Lewis come in, you pit him for the same Could, tires and back him it. against Lewis in a head-to-head Couldn't. fight? But he'd be behind Lewis because well, Lewis had the had the under, the evil undercut yes. would have worked for Lewis. Because there's no way on earth, and everyone knows that, that a Red Bull is going to overtake, a Red Bull with Verstappen is going to overtake Lewis Hamilton at Hungary, one of his best tracks, when they, actually the Mercedes was a little bit quicker and a little bit kinder on its tyres in the race. It wasn't going to happen, and they knew it. Their only chance was to tough it out. So Red Bull aren't really a contender then at all. They're just pretending. No, no, one, no one thinks, no one in their right mind who isn't, who isn't trying to fill words on a website thinks that anybody other than Lewis Hamilton can win this world championship. Yes, there's going to be anonymous races like um, last weekend yeah, in Germany. Not anonymous. I said, I, no, you missed that, that, I, I said anonymous. Okay. It, must it sounded come the same. <laughs> but, um, but the point about it is, is that there's all this hype and everything else. Max Verstappen drove brilliantly on Saturday to pick up pole, which was a very good job. Mm-hmm. He then drove as well as he could drive uh, in the actual main race. The question is that, yeah, you don't know whether it's the Red Bull that's hard in its tyres or just the way that Max was driving it. Unfortunately, he wore out his tyres and Mercedes saw the opportunity that happened. They obviously know an awful lot was going on because 20, 27 laps out, they realised that could be a possibility. They took the gamble, which was a win for nothing because they didn't think they would be able to get past him anyway because of on equal age tyres. And Lewis, you know, managed to... Do what Lewis can do is just run, for, just make up the time couple, and not burn the tyres. A couple of comments here. David Tubrew says if Pierre Gasly had been a bit closer, they wouldn't have been able to pit Lewis. Fair as point. Said, as uh, I said. Absolutely correct. Uh, also, I did think it was funny that the that Lewis complained loudly uh, to Pete Bonington, his uh, engineer, that they why did the pit him? That was the wrong thing. I'm never going to catch him. Whilst Max complained loudly to his engineer, why did you pit me? I would have had a chance. I I could have got back. I, I put me in. I think I think we've now heard enough of the story of Lewis Hamilton as told by Team Radio mm. to realise that that is how he motivates himself. 
that is how he's just doing the dressing room at Old Trafford under Alex Ferguson. Yeah. He's just making the whole world's against me, and that gives him motivation. He's happy, to, you know, I believe he's genuinely happy with the team when he comes and says it, but he's going to question what A, he, he has to question them, and B, it just fires him up. Mm. You know, this is the point. I mean, and, and they go, oh, I don't like Lewis Winge, it's not with a world championship. But let's be honest about this we have no idea what jackie stewart or jim clark would have said if they'd had radio they didn't have it we have no idea what alan pross would have said or did say and Ayrton Senna because the radio broadcasts weren't transmitted they could be whinging like anything we'd yeah. never have known well you know exactly what jackie stewart was saying what was he saying yes, he was complaining about his tires yes absolutely didn't like had... a melted Mars bar, yeah. no rigidity anymore. William Zadarnis well, says, Nick, Red Bull didn't feel Max could do the job. Surely they should have brought him in straight away and giving him the opportunity to see if he could handle Mercedes they, they and Lewis. Knew. No, but, they knew. That but, they, had but, but they had no. But if they thought they had no chance, why wouldn't you go down swinging? At least you've got to because, give Mercedes. You've got to give because, Mercedes their due. At least they rolled the dice. They had twenty-two second lead and. If, as often happens, the Pirelli's last, Pirelli's last longer than they say they're going to do. Don't forget, there was a, a swathe of period when Lewis stopped gaining. Yes. He gained, stopped gaining. That, that period and then they fell off a cliff. I know, but they fell off a cliff, what, seven laps to go. The problem with Pirelli's is you never know when they're going to fall off a cliff. If they'd fallen off a cliff with one lap to go or two laps to go, he wouldn't have been overtaken. Mm. In fact, in many ways, he was lucky they fell off so early so he could get off and get the extra point of a fastest lap. Well, that's true. If Lewis had overtaken with two laps to go, he'd be stymied and wouldn't have got that either. So no, I think I think both drivers did very well. I think it was it was it was an excellent retort from both Lewis and uh, Mercedes, who have been both written off after one Last week unfortunate end. race. And it's can, know, we, and, can and, we just mention how graceless Verstappen was in the week when he was talking about um, Hamilton? Though I mean, really, he's a guy. It's taken five years to get a pole position, and he and he thinks he's better than 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 Lewis and you know I'm no Lewis fan but I just thought his comments were bang out of order I, I didn't sorry I didn't see those ones so where was that then? oh yeah all right okay that doesn't it doesn't matter um it, 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 well, I, I think I think the problem what you've got to remember is is that is that there's uh, uh, this desire and it comes from Christian Horner and the rest of them oh yeah to, to try and their constant big upping of various things to try and take the focus away from the fact it doesn't really matter let's remember it doesn't matter red bull if the weak link is your engine your chassis your driver the fact is you've won nothing for six years yeah and you can wander around the fact is you christian horner are responsible for the package which is driver chassis and engine and you haven't got it right for the last six years stop looking for excuses all the excuses are saying is i've got that bit wrong or that bit wrong so I'm not quite sure about this concept. It seems to me we might have better just to try and all pull together. And picking up one particular person doesn't help him either. No. As, as I've said before, it's very his job. He's a great racing driver. He's incredibly quick. Who's he's, this? Verstappen. Yeah, yeah. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. No great pressure. and fast. It's fabulous. Well, he was. Oh, he oh. had pressure because he was on pole. And as right turn lover says, hey. Mercedes Benz was second. They could play with a strategy. Once the undercut card had been played, uh, the leader had no chance. Uh, Red Bull might have been better losing the position at the start. It's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, thought. I, I know people said that, but if if Lewis had been leading, uh, he'd have had, I think, six seven seconds more lead than Verstappen, and he would have managed to make his tyres last the extra five or six laps, mm. but he or the car. So 
it's all ifs and buts. The fact was, we got a very good race. We got, had a nice conclusion. The right person I enjoyed won. it. And yeah, and, and there was like, some great, some interesting racing. It's not what I think of as a Formula One race, but I really enjoyed it. Tim, where do you want to go next? Uh, best weekend for Team Awful Williams. Williams, a bit closer this time. Yeah, you make that, you're going to have to make that gap shorter. No, we I did. Is <laughs> <laughs> it tied at one point three? No, I mean, George Russell, brilliant. No, yeah. Really, almost got the thing out of um, out of, of Q1. <laughs> not a great aim. Uh, it's been his yeah. aim all season, though. Yes, it has. Um, you know, not in the, not in the running for the Mercedes job, which is now apparently between Ocon and Bottas only. Um, fair enough. But... Uh, which is odd, because really, Ocon hasn't got that much more experience, and he's got less relevant experience. He's not driven this year, but um, yeah. Oh, yeah, so obviously there was a chance for the the poles to meet. Um, Robert Kubica, but that's his last chance. He won't be there next year. Uh, and then obviously everyone that's supposed to talk about everyone else wasn't going to be there next year. So it was all kind of a bit of a silly season going on with some of the other drivers as well. Uh, Bottas has a secret plan. Yeah, it's to be. It's to when he gets fired from uh, uh, Mercedes in the next couple of weeks to go somewhere else. Mm. There's plenty of teams that want him. He's a very talented driver, and there's a great number of teams. We're very happy to have him. Not least where he used to be in Williams. I don't know what the heck he'd go there. I've no idea. I liked what uh, Lewis said in the press conference when there was a bit of crosstalk between him. Uh, it was him. It was the the top three. The the proper press conference after the top three, not the the chat in Park Fermi. And they were talking about Alonso and Lewis said we should have the best drivers in Formula One and they should be in good seats and it would be great if he came back. And Verstappen said, well, um, there'll be a seat with you next year. And uh, Lewis said, well, no, Valtteri's great. He wins races. Surely you've the guy, you're the team that's got the spare seats. <laughs> And then, and Vettel then went, ah, remember, I didn't see any of this, (laughs) which I thought was excellent. We did discuss the possibility of Fernando's return uh, in quite a lot of depth last week. Anything else you want to add uh, on the race, Nick, before we move on? Can I I just say one thing? No, this was addressed to Nick. Well, I want to ask Nick something. I I thought you'd said anonymous, and you'd said anomalous. Um, Anonymous, Ferrari were anonymous this weekend. They were, (laughs) they almost got lapped. Yeah, because it's the, along with Monaco and Singapore, the track where you need the most downforce. Peak downforce is what it's all about. Straight line to me is not what it's all about. Uh, It couldn't play less to their strengths and most of their weaknesses. You know, after summer break, we go to Spa and Monza, and that's going to be their best chance of picking up some wins this year. Now we all know what this music means. Yeah, it's a co- call it advert. Uh, no, Nick was correct. It's a film review. I know that. I was just being contrary. Uh, and obviously, uh, we haven't done film news for a while. And there's two big uh, sports car films coming out. Uh, one this weekend. In fact, the preview was last week. The premiere was last week. The Porsche Mission E sports car has a role in a new film from the director of Frozen. Oh dear God, what? really? The concept car is the prototype for the first all-electric Porsche, the Taycan, which will be launched next month. In the movie, the character of secret agent Rex Dasher drives a white Mission E. This is the first film project of... Well, Por- is it a Mission E or a Taycan? Well, I think the Mission E is based on the Taycan. Other way around. Other way around. Oh, OK. 
Fair enough. Hang on, what's the film called? I haven't got that far. Yes, and if you stop interrupting, you'll let me get there. <laughs> this is the first film project of Porsche and Playmobil, who yes. have been jointly developing right. play sets and collaborating in the field of marketing since 2014. We talked about this last week. Not on air, though. Yes. No, we didn't. With Cher. No, we didn't. Yes, we did. We talked about it after the show, because I All said right. we didn't have time to do this. Story. All right, okay. That's right, you did. That's right. Porsche was Playmobil's... Uh, no, we've done that quite, haven't we? Uh... The successful cooperation uh, of Porsche and Playmobil will be crowned by a movie with the matching playset. The companies will also present the first remote-controlled Porsche from Playmobil. So let's talk about the plot. A girl called Marla has to bring home her younger brother Charlie after he disappears into an animated Playmobil universe. On her journey through new worlds, Marla encounters very different companions, a food truck owner, a robot, a fairy, and Rex Dasher's secret agent. The intrepid and charming secret agent drives the Porsche Mission E, an electric sports car that has a number of remarkable functions. Together they overcome great challenges and uh, recognise that they can succeed in everything if they believe in themselves. are they going to suddenly burst into everything is awesome? Because literally, this is just let's. See. Oh, didn't Lego make a lot of money? Let's do a Playmobil movie, isn't it? Fantastic. Uh, the movie will be screened at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. on August 10th and 11th as part of the Porsche for Kids Summer Holiday Program at the Porsche Museum, and it's on general release on August 29th. Now, while we're talking about Porsche, the Porsche headquarters in the U.S. in Atlanta plays a massive role in Avengers Endgame, which made it even more funny. When Tony Stark pulled up outside of it in an Audi e-tron, which I thought was hilarious. Is it it their headquarters then? Yes, that building is um, one Porsche Boulevard in Atlanta. That's where you and I went. Do you know what? The really weird thing was I thought I recognised it when I was watching the film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's also coming up, uh, as I say, starting the, the previews of Ori Hatman, The Art of Racing in the Rain. There's a movie about a dog, it's not about cars. Denny Swift is a Formula One race car driver who understands the techniques needed on the racetrack can also be used to successfully navigate everyday life. Besides his career, Denny has... He's a Formula One racing driver. Why is he driving a a GT3 um, BMW? Uh, Because he's he's a failed Formula One driver and he's he's decided to step up. Anyway, uh, 9th of August in the United Kingdom, so that's a couple of days away. Uh, Patrick... Temp- Brad- Patrick Dempsey promoted it. It stars Gary Cole as the uh, wizened old uh, race car chief, Milo Ventimiglia, Avanda- Amanda Seyfried, uh, and uh, Kevin Cosner is the voice of Enzo the dog. He's not, by the way, he's not in Formula One in the books. And Ford versus Ferrari. By the way, most of the scenes there were filmed at um, Canadian Time Motorsport Park for Art of Racing in the Rain. And Ford versus Ferrari, most of the racing films were at Michelin Road Atlanta. Michelin that's Raceway that's Road that's Atlanta. November, isn't, it? Hmm? isn't Ford versus Ferrari out in November? Uh, yes, that's later on. Haven't, I've, I've only seen the, um, pre, the trailer for that and um, I reserve judgment until I've seen it. The art of racing in the rain, at least the racing scene. All I say is at least the racing sequences were done by racing car drivers who understood racing. And we'll move on from that point. Uh, something we forgot to mention a couple of weeks ago, or didn't have time to mention a couple of weeks ago, is nominees have been announced for the International Motor Film Awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There are once again nine categories, 60 nominees in total. Uh, and 
Yes, you can find them on the website. Excellent, well done. I, I was very interested in Amanda Seyfried's um, Prada outfit for. You really, you really can't leave the pause there. Outfit for <laughs> um, the New York uh, premiere of the film. Um, unconventional is how it's been. Um, well, I'm not in favour of Amanda Seyfried films where she doesn't sing. Mm, okay, I don't think she sings in this one. No, dog, dog probably does though. Patrick right, Long yeah. was the driver for most of the uh, the racing scenes in Art of Racing, in the rain. Are we finished with Nick? Uh, I think so, unless he's seen any other motorsport related films. Um, well, I've been in. Obviously, I'm sure I'll have a, a busy career in my in my later life. But for now, no, I'm in none. <laughs> Uh, Adrian McElroy says, watching Spider-Man Far From Home yesterday, observe it was full of Audis. That's yet another Marvel film. If you remember, all of the Iron Man films have had Audis in them down through the years. Whereas, I've never uh, seen any of them. Oh, you've missed out. Whereas Mission Impossible tends to have a lot of BMWs in. Uh, bikes and cars. Mission Impossible actually has real racing drivers doing the stunts. Well, so does... Um, well, most movies now have real racing drivers. That's true. M- Mission Imp- there was one Mission Impossible <laughs> that I watched where the I remember pausing it on the plane and and reading down it it looked it looked like a race grid the, the amount of people that were in it it was fantastic. Uh, shall we lose Nick? Uh, I thought we already had. All right, no, Nick- I'm still here, but I'll go. Bye. Are you here next week, Nick? Uh, I don't know. Are you here next week? Yes. Well, I'll probably try me over there then. Right, we've saved the duck for you. You'll be happy. Oh, marvellous. All Thanks, right. Guys. Cheers, yeah. man. Bye bye. It's Nick Damon joining us live on Midweek Mornings. Bing, he's gone. Uh, he's, bu- he's gone. Uh, where would you like to go next, Tim? Uh, well, I could say anything now, and you'd have the wrong guest online. So I'll have to say I'd like to go to Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin. Well, we'll go to Ear Lake. But I don't think it's Elkhart Lake. <laughs> Shea Adam, are you with us? I am with you. Hello. Uh, Hello. Which lake are you next to at the moment? It's not Elkhart Lake. No, no, it's the Joe River, uh, part of the Muskoka Lakes in between Rosso and Joseph. Okay. Um, we are pressing as far as we can with the technology. A uh, lot of Scott Arthur tonight, so that was a lot of IMSA. Uh, quick, uh, a quick look back at the weekend, Tim. You happy with that? Uh, yes, yeah. should we start with uh, the Michelin Pilot Challenge? Well, shall we just end, end with the last lap? The leader who came across the line, Sheik, ended up in seventh position and everybody else shuffled around. It, it was the most spectacular thing. And, you know, when people are arguing for a longer race at Road America, I give them the 75-minute contest we had on Saturday. You don't need a longer race for it to be just as good. And, in fact, sometimes a shorter race is better The championship looking after that race is really interesting, though, John, because we have a top three breakaway. It's 13 points between the first place, uh, Tyler McQuarrie and Jeff Westfall, and third place, Corey Fergus and Jesse Lazare with um, Jones and Clay in between those two. But then you go back down through the field and from fourth down to seventh. It's pretty much wide open, and then you keep going down, and again, it continues. The competitiveness of this field throughout this year in GS is excellent. 
Um, the race was 25 minutes shorter than our countdown to grain programme. And thanks to John DeGase for jumping <laughs> in on that. We covered a lot of ground, actually. If you haven't heard that yet, go back. It's on uh, RadioLamont.com and www.radio-show.co.uk. Um, first thing I'll say about that was well done to IMSA for getting it going. Well done for selecting a race length share that wasn't easily split in terms of the pit stops and modifying the driver time for the same reason. It really still made that 75-minute race a tactical challenge. It did. And and if you want any further proof of that, go talk to the Hart team because they crossed the line first, but they missed the minimum drive time for Ryan Eversley by eight seconds. Called it and I was at the time. I called of, it at the time. It, Oh, have we lost you? Race, who were saying, you watch the pit stop, right? Mm. No, I'm still here. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Now? Yes, yes, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I, I talked to a couple of people uh, afterwards who said, you watch the pit stop. They looked leisurely in their pit stop. And I, I completely agree with, with the uh, sentimentality of that. There wasn't a great deal of urgency, but also they had an option. They could have left Ryan on the same tires for the remainder of the race. Instead, they did a four-tire change to go from wets to slicks, mm. and that was the ultimate difference. They lost Cher. the time doing that tire. Sure, they could have come in one lap earlier, which is what they should have done, because you never want to cut it that fine. What was the point of cutting it that fine? They would have come out in exactly, exactly. the same place. They didn't gain anything on that last lap that he was out there. They cut it too fine, and ultimately, they paid a big penalty for it. Now, the team themselves, very classy, and Ryan particularly so on social media, said, look, we got it wrong. Uh, We've paid the price. Move on. Yeah, uh, the biggest ramification coming out of that is championship because they are currently ninth in points after that 13th place result. They have 156 points. Immediately ahead of them is 161. So there's five points. Two positions up is a 14-point difference. They would have had them beat. Three positions up is 18-point difference. They would have had them beat. They would have launched themselves from being ninth in the championship easily to being in contention for third, maybe fourth. Um, And just before we move on to WSC, Tom O'Gorman and Shelby Blackstock back in form on the podium. Yeah. Keeps their championship going, which is great for them because they've had a couple of horrible weekends. WeatherTech Sports Car Championship next and three in a row for Mazda you've got to see it that's the headline um it was Mazda versus Honda Acura as it was seven years ago coming up the hill at the end another cracking road America finish yeah and I have to say I really like the way that the championship is shaping out in prototype because remember it was back in 2014 Kuna Whitmer and Jonathan Bomarito were sharing a Viper they were split for the last race Whitmer took the championship and Bomarito didn't well, Jonathan now is third without Harry Tignall because Harry missed a race. Remember, he was not present in mid-Ohio. So Bomarito on his own could win a championship five years after he lost a championship on his own. So that would be a very interesting turn of events. But I've got a trivia question for you, John. How many races in prototype has a Penske not been on the podium this year? None. One. Oh. Sebring. Okay. We have to go all the way back to the 12 hours of Sebring to the last time that a Penske was not on the podium and the last time the number six was not on the podium. This championship run that they are stringing together is phenomenal. But even in the driver's points, we've got an Acura, 
ahead of a Cadillac, ahead of a Mazda. Boy, how the times have changed. Yes. Uh, GT Le Mans. Bam. Go on. Well, Bam Thor. Bamthor continue to rack up the podiums even on the, their bad weekends. Mm. So they're 14 points ahead of their teammates. But what's interesting, you've got Westie and Briscoe just slowly creeping up the charts there with their two wins. They're now into third. They're 18 points behind Bamthor, but they are four points behind the 911 Porsche. Who's going to have the better weekend at VIR? Horrid weekend for BMW. Pole position, not pole position. Didn't oh. really show in the in the race. Weird. Weird brake problem with brake fluid leaking yeah. out. Uh, they need to pick themselves up and and come with a, a fresh. Uh, uh, no, I was going to say a fresh attitude. That's not fair. They always go in with the mm. right attitude, but they need some fresh look, don't they? Going to the GT, the Michelin GT Challenge at VIR. And if there is anything that can perk them up, John, it's that very fact that we are racing at a track that they won at 12 months ago. And then the next track we go to, again, they got a win last year. So they are the defending race winners in the M8 GTLM. There's no excuses why these two tracks shouldn't be the ones that they turn it around at. And GT Daytona? Oh, okay. Talk about the Turner Motorsports (laughs) show. We're talking about racing in the rain. These guys have been on fire the last couple of races. They put the magic crystals in their fire suits. They've had four straight podium. And the most incredible thing is, okay, we've got Mario and Trent out there running around with this substantial points lead. It was more than 30 points coming into the weekend. Well, now it's down to 26. Bill and Robbie are in this championship after a horrific start to the season. You've got Zach Robichon just behind them, and then Hawksworth and Highstand right behind them. It's a really interesting fight for second. My feeling is that with Bill and Robbie going into these races with as much positivity as they have, they're going to be really hard to beat come Petit Le Mans. Yeah, so that's uh, accurate NSX versus BMW. And and we should just say congratulations to Robin Liddell. We didn't mention it, but Rebel Rock Racing, get another victory. Uh, whatever you think about what happened on the run to the line in Michelin Pilot Challenge, the round the outside double overtake at... Uh, turn 12, Canada Corner. Uh, Robin Liddell is a superstar. I said it then. Yes. I, I, stay, I stay with it. Let's move on uh, to uh, NASCAR, where Tim Gray wants to talk about something quintessentially English. We have a Yorkshireman going to NASCAR. Er? Uh, the Yorkshireman that you mentioned just now, John. Hawksworth. Jack Hawksworth mm. will make his debut at Mid-Ohio this weekend in the Joe Gibbs Racing number 19, sorry, number 18 Toyota in the Xfinity Series. He said, I'm excited to be joining the Joe Gibbs Racing team and driving the number 18 IK9 Toyota Supra this weekend at Mid-Ohio. It's a fantastic opportunity in a completely different series against completely different competition in a different type of racing. And he's not the only IMSA driver that's there, Shea. No, Lawson Aschenbach is going to be taking part in that weekend. No Andy Lally for the first time in a very long time at Mid-Ohio, but he's been pushing all of his support towards Lawson. I didn't realize that Jack was going to be doing that. How cool. Yeah, very cool uh, indeed. Uh, Shea, thank you very much. Short but sweet uh, from you this evening. Just want to say congratulations whilst we're on the NASCAR Xfinity Trail. Uh, congratulations to... Uh, um, Austin Sindrick who won at the Glen at the weekend and we finish Midweek Motorsports Series 14 episode 30 with some sad news from Tim Gray. Uh, the death of one of the greats of French motorsport and international motorsport, Jean-Paul Drio, aged 68, after a long battle with leukaemia. 
Born in St. Didier en Valais in September 1950, Drio launched the GDBA team in the mid 1980s along with Pierre Blanchet. The team was successful almost immediately with Michel Trolley achieving a podium finish on the team's debut at Silverstone, then taking its first win at Spa just five weeks later. The following year, Trolley returned to the team and to the podium, but his season was cut short by an accident at Brands Hatch. His new teammate, Olivier Griard, took two wins, finishing second in the championship. Following the death of Blanchet to cancer in 1988, Drio formed a new team, this time with René Arnoux. It was to be called Dams, and like GDBA, it entered the International Formula 3000 Championship. Eric Bernard finished the first season level on points with Jean Alesi, losing out on the title by having fewer race wins. His teammate Eric Comas was third in the championship, but would go on to win the title the following season alongside Alan McNish. Further titles followed in the 90s with Olivier Panis and Jean-Christophe Bouillon. By the turn of the millennium, Drio's team had expanded to other championships. It won the Formula Renault V6 title in 2003 with Jose Maria Lopez and in its later iteration of Formula Renault 3.5, two more titles followed with Carlos Sainz Jr. and Kevin Magnussen. The team took on the running of A1GP's Team France, winning in its first season with Nicolas Lapierre and Alexandre Prema. It also ran the Switzerland team that season, which finished as runner-up. Five GP2 titles followed for Kamui Kobayashi, Julian Palmer, Davide Vasecki and Roman Grosjean, who also won for the team in AutoGP. In 2014, in partnership with Alain Prost, Drio would launch the EDAMS Formula E team, winning the title the following season with Sebastian Buemi. But it wasn't all about single-seaters. It couldn't be for a team based within walking distance of Le Mans. DAMS diversified into sports cars in 1997, and that season entered the FIA GT Championship, as well as the first of six consecutive 24 hours, reuniting Bernard, Bouillon and Frank Legorse in the first of those. But success was not to be as easy to find at Le Sarth, and DAMS only recorded two finishes. Later entries to the FIA Sports Car Championship and the American Le Mans series would be equally fruitless. However, under Drio's leadership in 30 seasons, 31 drivers have graduated to Formula 1, the team's won 25 titles and 147 races, the most recent at the Hungaro Ring this weekend by Nicola Latifi, who dedicated his victory to Drio. Jean-Paul Drio is survived by his wife Genevieve and sons Gregory and Olivier. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.